Before we get started with today's show, I'm here to tell you about Brez Coffee Company, made by gamers for gamers right here on the Gulf Coast in Pensacola, Florida. Do you like lighter medium roast? Then try the Necro Medium, Holy Grail Light, or Stamina Boost. Or if you're like me and prefer darker roast, try the Critical Dark or the Coup Slayer Mocha Roast. But what if you can't pick just one? Then try one of their specialty sample packs, perfect for an all-night gaming or in the case of my fellow filmmakers, an all-night editing session. Forget about all the crappy coffee you've been buying at the grocery store and head on over to brezcoffeeco.com. Use the promo code DDE at checkout to get 10% off your order. Have you ever thought to yourself after listening to this podcast, why didn't Derek ask this question? Or why didn't he ask that question? I know I certainly have. Well, you get the chance to do that if you sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. You get the chance to ask guests of the show a question. If you're a fan of the top five list, you get the chance to vote on what the topic will be. You also get early access to episodes, accessibility to my film scripts, and so much more. And you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And we want to thank our patrons, Tim Spivey, Donna Diamond, and Shannon Williams. Thanks so much for your continued contributions. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and coming up on today's show, you'll be hearing my conversation with producer, writer, and director Joel Soisson. And this conversation was really fascinating because I don't get to talk with a lot of producers on the show, and Joel gives a fantastic explanation of what exactly a producer does in the film industry. And it's, it was such a great learning experience. You know, he started um, in the mid eighties, which is my favorite era of filmmaking. He's produced such films as nightmare on Elm street two, and most notably a movie you may know called bill and Ted's excellent adventure. So it was really fascinating to get to hear his story on how he was involved with that. And also how he was hired to do a rewrite of the Lion King back in the nineties. And that story blew me away. Cause I had no idea that that was even a, a thing. I had no idea that he did that. So really cool conversation. Hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I had being a part of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Joel Swasson. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, and this week it's my pleasure to welcome Joel Soisson to the show. Joel, how are you, sir? I am doing great for the time being. Fantastic. It's really all you can ask for, right? <laughs> In these times, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I first of all, I wanted to say, you know, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat with me here on the show. I was looking at your IMDB page before we started, and was really kind of blown away with you know the the amount of work that you've done uh, and some of the projects you've worked on in the industry, which I'm sure we'll get into some of those at some point. But uh, I wanted to kind of start by getting a little bit of your backstory. Where are you originally from, and what was it that made you want to work in the film industry? Because as I'm sure you've heard, there's not really a set path 
to getting into film. Everybody has their unique journey of, you know, maybe coming from another mm -hmm. career. They knew they wanted to do it from, you know, the first time they could form memories. So what, how, what drew you into the film industry? Well, it's, uh, it's not as straight a path as a lot of people have taken. I wasn't one of these guys that was making epic features in my backyard as a kid with a, with a Super 8 camera. I, I actually wanted to be a painter like my father. Um, and uh, at some point in art school, I just decided that, that it was probably based on my talent and the marketplace in general, I was not gonna be able to feed myself. Uh, so I then drifted more into the, the film arts, beginning with animation, then, then um, film. And, um, you know, basically sort of forged my way from there. I, I'm not one of these people of my generation that had this sort of transformative moment. I, I've, I found that um, there's a huge group of people who will tell you, and maybe you've heard them go, um, I decided to join the film community when I watched Star Wars for the first time. And that just made them into believers. Um, nothing like that for me. It was all sort of a slow crawl up to doing whatever I could. And that was more, my, my trajectory was like water, just finding its way, you know, path, paths of least resistance kind of thing. Right. Uh, kind of speaking on, as you said, you went into animation before you went into film. With your background in art and originally you, that being what you wanted to do, was that kind of a natural transition for you? It, it was. It was It was pretty simple. I mean, going from painting to then 24 paintings in a second. And then the quick realization back in the day when people were hand drawing, um, that is pretty much close to sweatshop work you know you just can blow your mind doing that kind of thing over and over and over again all day long and my hats off to those great especially the disney animators which was the program i was going to go into um they're artists in their own right and i, I just uh, some of my favorite films came out of that studio but the making of it was just too difficult the idea of 24 frames by clicking a button uh, much better. I just instantly kind of gravitated toward that. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I, I watch, you know, current animation that has like that kind of a computer generated look, or even some of mm -hmm. the more traditional looking animation, but still digital. I get, and maybe it's because I grew up, you know, in late eighties and into the nineties. So watching movies like Aladdin, like the Lion King, Mm -hmm. seeing that that hand-drawn style of animation there's just like a certain charm to it and I, I don't know if you feel the same way but it's like you can feel the love and the time that went into into those films yeah I, I still I, I have a special fondness for those kinds of movies I I love watching the new CG stuff and that's great but it's the same thing with with effects in motion pictures where the real stuff when you're dealing with real cars and real real bodies and real guts and real explosion and just there's a visceral quality of it that i think we've we've lost it's funny the lion king is one of my favorite animated films i just think that was sort of the the beginning of the end for 
drawn animation but by then i had already moved on and was writing and i was actually brought in to pitch a rewrite of the original lion king script really and yeah and um i read the script and this has never happened to me as a writer before i thought the script was perfect because you know writers all want to step on everybody's work and they all got a better idea than the next guy and they, they think they're so like cool and great and they've got the, they've got the juice and you know i was going to walk into that that meeting and slay them with my ideas and i basically sat there sweating going i got nothing i got nothing i can offer to get the gig that would have defined my whole existence <laughs> and you know i just slumped out of that that interview feeling like okay end of the road my career is over and fortunately it wasn't quite so how how far into your career were you when that interview took well, place i would say that was what early 90s i, I can't even yeah say it for was sure. it was early or late to 80s okay um yeah so i had pretty well established myself as a producer a little less so as a writer um and um but it it was certainly it would have changed the trajectory of my career i'm a, i am a guy who has as you've probably noticed on my imdb page quite a few horror films and genre mm -hmm. films and and sort of teen action comedies and that sort of thing and um I could have very well pictured myself doing um, more, you know, studio-based animation writing, a lot easier than drawing, and um, um, more adventures and more kind of personal stories of the nature that I finally wound up getting to do uh, this far into my career with like my latest film. Um, but it took me a long time to get there and not to disparage horror films in any way, but they are much more mechanical as a process than the, the sort of the art of storytelling, which um, kind of excites me. Right. You had mentioned you're going in, getting into animation and then into film. Once you made the transition to film, you also mentioned you were a writer and a producer. Which one of those avenues did you go through first? Um, I found producing the easiest to do because um, I worked for a producer and basically the, the job just finds, winds up on, on your, your lap, whether you want it or not. Basically what producers are there to do is solve problems. So if there's a problem nobody else able or willing to solve, they call you in to fix things. And I guess I was a pretty good fixer because I'd worked on a lot of different um, roles in films and kind of knew people's problems and had both some technical and some creative solutions for just about anything that, that came up. But the problem with producing I've learned over the years um, is that it is exactly that. It is a, is a repository for problems and pain people that just need help with something, whether they're stuck in an airport because they couldn't get a ticket from, from the, the production or whether the, 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 the building collapsed, uh, your set collapsed that you were gonna shoot the next day and you've got to rebuild it and you have nothing to shoot. I mean, it's only problems. Whereas the director 
can just sit sit back and go, I want this, I want that. And the writer can write these things. I want the Taj Mahal to float away on a, on a, on a flash flood. It's the producer's got to figure out how all that stuff gets done. And it's just painful at times. But I also, and in, in kind of dabbling more into the business side of film, like I've been doing the last few weeks on the show, it's really almost like an unsung hero type of job because when people think of film, they automatically think of, you know, the, the actors that you see on screen, yeah. or in some cases you have your directors like your Spielberg, your uh, George Lucas, your John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. You don't really hear about producing and what goes on. You, I want to say on a different level, but almost like, a behind the scenes type of job that you don't really have a full understanding of what you have to go through in order to make what you see on screen happen. So I, I have nothing but respect for you know producers and those who in a sense do the grunt work for how well, films get made. That's a very good question slash statement because um, I have a lot of respect for producers who do it better than me um, that, that just dig into every problem and don't wait for it to happen and are playing three-dimensional chess the whole time they're making a movie. Um, there's really, well, there's more than two kinds of producers, but to, to, to speak broadly, because my mother never for the entire time she was alive had no real idea what I did as a producer. And I couldn't explain it to her because I could barely explain it to myself. But there are those producers who I want to be and really have never got gotten there yet, but they're the ones they call the dogs with the script tied to their collar, which they, they don't have to do anything. It's just they've got a property and they can sit in, in a fancy restaurant and over lattes discuss whether they want Tom Hanks or, or Christian Bale and um, then dial up the, the physical producer, the guy who's got to make all that happen or woman and wash their hands and go, okay, um, I'm going to take my check and go come up with some new movie and, and good luck. I'll, I'll see it at the, uh, the screening. Um, and then there's all sorts of other producers who just get, get credit because they're, they're friends of the, the actor or they put a couple bucks in. I actually looked at, at IMDB for a guy that I wanted to hire on as a producer on this film I'm doing um, in, uh, uh, well, actually later this month. And I kid you not, on the IMDb, IMDb page under producer, there were 99 credits for this movie, 99 producers. And I was just like, I actually worked on one where there were 20 and I thought that was the most absurd travesty that I'd ever participated in. And here's one that's almost a hundred. And what does that do to cheapen a role that used to be like, you know, the great David Oselsnick kind of names of the past are now watered down to a guy on, on um, Indiegogo or whatever it is that, you know, that, that chipped in $125 and got a credit. It's not like the, the badge of honor, almost like you're referring to that you know, a producer should have. No, it, it's unfortunately, it's just the currency is so devalued now that it's like paper. And um, it's sad because really good producers, and I don't necessarily count myself among them, but the really good ones deserve the, 
the 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 credit that should be accorded to a superstar. And I think as far as you mentioning, you know, like Indiegogo or, you know, whatever crowdfunding they use, I feel like there should be maybe a different title for that. There need to be guardrails put up on, on that role. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what that title would be, but I definitely think they should get credit because they financially contribute to the project. But as you mentioned, for it to be something in the same vein of, you know, one of the hardest jobs in the industry, I think should be. Yeah. Um, well, separated after this is over, you and me come up with a title. We should, we, we should, and, and then copyright it and copyright it. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Yes. Now you, now you're talking. Yeah. That's there we the go. Money is. There we go. We get a yeah. nickel for every time that credit is accorded anywhere on any movie, any place. Yes. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Stand by world. Yep, absolutely. So um, there is one specific film that I would like to ask you about. You were the, a producer on uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, mm -hmm. which was you know, one of the great cult hits of the late 80s. And most recently, you know, the, the new film came out, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, how was your time working on that film? And, and did you expect it to be the cult hit that it is now? No, um, we made that film and the, the studio that um, financed it was so, let's say, unimpressed with the film that they didn't even bother to test it. They just like on a fire sale, they fobbed it off to some very small little upstart company that took it upon themselves to actually put it in front of a real audience and surprise, surprise, they liked it. And um, that gave, that was one of those, those lessons that you learn in, in movie making and in life is that if you believed in something once, then be careful to abandon that belief with, you know, shoddy evidence. The, the, the only screening we ever had at the parent company was a bunch of guys who are my age now, um, who had no connection to youth culture whatsoever or the humor of the time and, and um, didn't even smile throughout the entire movie. And you, you know as well as anybody, you're sitting next to somebody in a dark theater and if they're laughing and crying and, and, and leaning into the film, then you're liking it too, usually. But if they're just like, oh, uh, this is a piece of crap. And then they're just like fidgeting and looking at their phone and whatever. The movie just dies. It's the same movie, but it's, it's suddenly a, a piece of crap. And that's how it played that first time. And to see it resurrected because somebody, not me, had a belief, a faith in the film that I had lost, um, allowed it to become what it was, which was something of a cult hit, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy because, first of all, I wanted to mention what you said about someone sitting next to you in a theater and how they react to it, and it's almost an infectious behavior. That's extremely accurate, and that's something that I think I missed the most about seeing movies in theaters you know, before COVID hit, was that you'd go yeah. to watch, say, like Avengers Endgame or some you know, hit comedy, when everyone else around you is just laughing and are in tears, that 
puts you in that same mindset and you start doing the same thing and it just draws you more into the movie. It's like that, that audience feedback just pulls you in even more. And I think can either evaluate or devaluate your, um, your thought of the movie. Or yeah. Elevate, I should, I should say, but yeah. And, and yeah, we miss that opportunity now to have the communal reaction to a mute, a movie. I mean, theaters are still out there. Let's not, let's not right. sing their, their death knell, but it's, it's definitely drastically changed and even more so post COVID. For sure. How did the COVID pandemic affect your career? And were you working on a project when the pandemic hit and things started to shut down? Actually, I had just finished um, something, that, a little TV movie that I, I had directed and written. Um, so when the shutdown hit, it was one of those blessings in disguise for me. And I, I you know, I feel the all the hurt and suffering that that my friends and family and the people around the world are, are still going through. But for me, I, I have to admit specifically that shutdown was um, a kind of a, a, a break that I needed and, and really kind of cherished. I sat at home, I wrote, and I wrote stuff that mattered to me. And I stared out the window at the shorebirds and took in life a little bit, which is, you know, any of these career hamster wheels that we climb onto and start spinning so fast that we forget that there's like something to look at out there and react. And so, absent people and absent travel and absent work i just like you know had that kind of somewhat zen year of 2020 and now that everything's cranking back up again and i've got two things waiting to go and one that's shooting in in a week and a half i'm kind of energized for how long i don't know but um but yeah so i i i almost needed it yeah, and I think what I've been telling people about the pandemic is that I, I don't I don't discount or downplay all the tragic events that have happened, you know, like discounting all the lives that have been lost and businesses shutting down and people have lost so much. But there have been some positive things that have come out of it. And as you mentioned, you you needed it gave you that time to kind of recharge your batteries and do more writing and Mm-hmm. you become and now you're excited about the projects that you're working on now and it was you know the the same thing with me you know it, it gave me a chance to kind of evaluate where I am as far as my mental health goes mm-hmm. uh, your burnout and everything like that so it, it's been um it, it's been an interesting time for sure but I, I think it's one of those things that you know you take the good with the bad and you try and take something good or take the best out of whatever situation yeah, you're in. I agree. Bit of a silver lining, if you want to call it that, that we got got to be a little bit more tuned into our own world. And, and also, in my case, reconnecting with friends that I hadn't really felt I had the time for and realized how stupid that was. Right. And it kind of makes you realize, you know, what's truly important in your yeah. life as well. Exactly. So... But no more of it. Let's 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 uh, let's end this thing sooner or later. I'm- yeah, absolutely. Ho- hopefully the we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. 
But talk to me about, because you, you've been mentioning a couple of times that you do have a couple of projects that you're currently working on, one that's shooting very soon. Is there anything that you'd like to discuss with those? Well, it um, it's kind of, we do things in, in this industry, I guess I do, in, in sort of waves. I mean, I, I did some original stuff and then find myself doing loads and loads of sequels. And um, I've very deliberately gone back to trying to do more original stuff now because sequels are fun in their own right, but they are sort of you're handed the tray with all the food on it and the, and the, and the utensils and all you get to do is sort of move things around to a certain extent. So um, the latest thing is kind of not sequels, but I, I've got two films that are based on old classics. The one that's coming up um, uh, this month that we're shooting in o Oklahoma, which is not a smart move given the COVID of it all, but who knew it was gonna be that bad when we started prepping. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a uh, remake, re, it's inspired by uh, The Magnificent Seven, if you remember that film. Oh, cool. Uh, which in its own right harkens back to the Seven Samurai, the great Japanese classic. Uh, yeah. And then later on, um, we're going to be filming a, a, a an adaptation of uh, the Treasure of the Sierra Madre in South Africa, in a sort of modern, contemporized, post-COVID South Africa, which would be kind of fun to try. For sure. No, both of those sound really cool. I, you know, Magnificent Seven is is, you know, to me, one of the more iconic films that have ever been made. So I think to do something that's kind of inspired by that is, sounds really exciting. Well, they run, they run off and they round up uh, Danny Trejo instead of Yul Brenner to be sort of this like badass kind of quasi machete-ish guy running around getting together his old cronies, you that's know, great. to uh, do some good in the world. That's and it's awesome. more more comedic than than uh, horrific, but um, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. And uh, and yeah, um, spend a lot of time um, on this current one. Just you know, um, as I'm sure you you know so so well, uh, the whole indie world is such a, a jungle, and um, to be able to to, to get a movie out there and get it on in onto so many platforms as we're doing with this current one um is it's a challenge and it's it's difficult and we've been lucky to get a boost from some really good uh, associates and distributors and reviewers and stuff like that but um you know there are when i started in, in uh around 1985 there were 50 independent feature films made in the US. Did you know that? I did not. Now there's 20,000. Nobody has a real accurate count because it's almost impossible, but that's the estimate. So to go, to go from that extreme to this extreme has been just mind numbing for a guy like me. Well, I think also with the invention of YouTube, Vimeo, and giving people so many other avenues to display their work. And plus the fact that you, you, in theory, you can make a film with your iPhone, you know, because the, the camera quality is great. All you need is, you know, a decent microphone, mm -hmm. some actors, and you can, 
you can make things happen. And that's kind of what I tell people is that if you want to make something or you want to get into film, you can start by doing that and really kind of teaching yourself how, yeah. how to make film. So I, I think with the, the addition of technology and new platforms, I think has really made the indie world kind of explode. And I know it's something that I've been learning more about, you know, in the last couple of years, since I switched my focus of this podcast to focus solely on film and TV, I've really been exposed to more indie work and getting mm -hmm. to interview different directors, actors that have been a part of that, that world has been really eye opening. Well, that's, that's, yes, I think you've characterized it beautifully. Uh, it's, um, it's really a new world now where access to the process is not governed by who has the toys and the money. It's very much, I think, like at the turn of the century or the last century when, you know, everybody aspired to be a writer, but once you could afford to buy a typewriter, then the playing field was level. Everybody had a typewriter if they wanted one. And the, the marketplace now was governed by the idea, not the access. And so you can make a feature film on, on your iPhone and it very likely will be crappy because you, it came too easy to you and you're just like messing around. But if you have a great idea and you manage to come up with the very small amount of money now it takes to make a film, a feature, and your idea is great, it will get, get seen and it will, it will start things for you. And, and ideas are king again. And I love that competition. I'd much rather compete in the arena of, of creativity than in access. Who's got the richest uncle? Right. You know? so, so good on the industry for that. It's gonna be harder for a lot of people to be heard when there's, you know, tens of thousands of people doing the same thing, but you at least have that chance that you never had before. Right. No, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, but uh, as we start to wrap up here, I, I always like to end the conversations with this. Uh, what a piece of advice could you give? Uh, normally I say to an aspiring filmmaker, but in your case, because you've been a producer for so many years and you've worked on so many different projects, what advice could you give to someone who's aspiring to be a producer? The best advice I, there's two, two things really. One is to um, try to get a job of any sort on, on a movie, whether it's uh, as my produ ex producing partner um, did start off uh, working at the craft service table, which is the snack bar on a movie set where you're just making coffee and snacks. And it seems like a thankless dead end job, but you meet everybody at the craft service table, the actors, the producers, the director, everybody, and you talk to them and you learn from them and you watch what's going on around you. And every job in a set is valid. And so that's one thing. And the other thing that I've always done um, is anything that needed to get done, I said, I would say yes to, no matter how menial that job was. Um, and I only stopped saying yes to everything about 10 years ago when it, I became too exhausted <laughs> to do everything that, that was asked of me. But um, uh, that, that's just being around somebody who needs something 
will get you um, noticed if you're willing to do that thing. And it just producing is just a collection of skills. It's not like writing where you're either good or you're, you're not, or a director where you're either good or you're not. If you're a producer, you're just getting a little good at this and a little good at that. And you're just watching and, and absorbing. And pretty soon you're the guy who has an answer for every question. And that to me is what a good producer is, is he just knows what you need and how to, to fulfill that need. I think that's great advice. Uh, do you have any website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Uh, yeah, I really do. Um, the the just simply because in all of the films that I've done, and you'll you'll notice if you happen to wander like you did across my IMDb page, I've done probably seventy features or something at this point. But the one I am truly the most proud of having uh, done is the one that I just finished called My Best Worst Adventure. And um, that one, uh, you can see if you just Google my best worst adventure, we're at on Facebook at my best worst adventure and Twitter at my best worst ADV for some reason. They, I guess, couldn't afford the extra letters. Um, and then I'm at Joel Soisson, S-O-I-S-S-O-N uh, on Twitter. And that's about as far as into social media as this old guy has managed to wade so far. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much the, the whole of what I've been doing, except for nine, uh, for 2020, where I sat on my ass for 12 months, <laughs> but you were productive in doing so productive. Yes. In a very quiet way. Yeah. But that's, that's the important thing, but exactly. Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. This was a great chat. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Joel Swasson for that amazing conversation. Be sure to follow him at Joel Swasson on Twitter to find out what he'll be up to next. For next week's show, it's Halloween week, and it's also the return of the top five list, and I'll be discussing my top five horror movie villains. And after just watching Halloween Kills and other movies that I've been watching throughout the month, I'm ready to do this list. It's going to be a fun conversation, and you can join me on Facebook Live this upcoming Monday at 6 p.m. Central Time, I'll be discussing top five horror movie villains, other Halloween-related movies, whatever we want to talk about. That's what I love about the live shows. You guys get, dictate the conversation. Whatever you guys want me to talk about, I'll talk about. So uh, be sure to follow me on social media. I'll post some links there uh, to be able to watch the show. You can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts for free. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more visible I become to the podcasting public. You can also find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. If you want to watch the video versions of the show, I'm on YouTube. Just search for Derek Diamond. You can find all the episodes there. And of course, thank you to my friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show, so enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. Bye.